What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I have two guests joining me today, and those are Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, hope I've got that right, Mauricio, and Adam Reeds. And these are the guys behind Ledin.io, a Canadian-based uh, Bitcoin financial services firm that offers uh, interest accounts and Bitcoin-backed loans. Um, I first heard of these guys when they were on the TFTC, Tales from the Crypt podcast, um, a little while back, and just thought it was super compelling. Um, Mauricio's from Venezuela originally, uh, and he was talking a lot about uh, what's going on in, in Venezuela, the current state of affairs, how the government seems to be using Bitcoin uh, to circumvent sanctions and how they may be mining Bitcoin. Um, and just to really get a better perspective on what life is like uh, in a socialist country and a socialist country that's been uh, encountering a lot of problems as a result of their, their system of government and the hyperinflation and things of that nature. Um, and I was also interested in speaking with Mauricio because obviously in the, in the world today, in North America and Europe and other parts of the world, socialism seems to be uh, gaining some kind of a a resurgence you know there seems to be a lot of supporters for socialism and uh, I just wanted to get his take as someone who's lived through it um, and is now living in Canada uh, what his take on uh, the current movement towards socialism is what parallels he sees to how it got started in Venezuela and how it transpired in Venezuela and what's going on in the West today. Uh, and just, you know, get his opinion, because I think he's probably closer to it than most. And then, of course, we talk about Ledin, you know, why they got into this business, all the details about how it works and that sort of stuff. So the first half is, is with Mauricio mainly, uh, because we're talking about Venezuela. And in the second part, Adam comes back in and we talk about Bitcoin and Ledin and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. So guys, thanks for uh, taking the time. I guess it's the end of your, it's Friday night for you guys, right? So you probably don't want to be hanging around the office any longer than you need to. So, so thank you for, for joining me. Um, uh, I've listened to a bunch of your stuff over the past couple of days. I first came across you guys from the, the TFTC uh, episode. I uh, thought that was great, and um, yeah, just wanted to get on and, and speak with you guys. I was thinking that maybe we could uh, do it in two parts. I think I'd, I'd like to start with some of the, for lack of a better term, Venezuela discussion, and then go to Leden uh, after that, if that's okay with you guys. Sure, sure. yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically just, obviously this story's been unfolding for a long time now. The the first thing that comes to my mind, and this is possibly not the best place to start, so you, you can, you know, you can uh, take it wherever you like. But obviously, you know, I've been talking a lot on the podcast and it comes up a lot in the Bitcoin community about the kind of emerging um, affinity for socialism in the Western developed world, let's, let's call it today. And um, I'm just wondering, and you know, all the rhetoric, I hear it and I just think, this is insanity. You know, I hear the rhetoric just seems so um, crazy to me. And I'm just wondering, at the beginning of, uh, you know, the socialist uh, movement, change, revolution in Venezuela, what was the rhetoric like? How were, how were the people in power positioning it to the public? What were the public talking? How were the public talking about it? Uh, yeah. And, and do you see any similarities between early days, Venezuela and what's going on today? Um, I think that's a great question. Uh, maybe 
the the I'll give you my anecdote from from growing up and and being around you know when Chavez was I guess released from prison. You know I grew up in Venezuela all the way back from when he heard, when he had his first coup attempt uh, from his second coup attempt. Uh, both times he failed and got jailed, but by the second time he essentially got released. And what what happened in Venezuela, the way I would I guess describe politics up until Chavez was that it was very much a gentleman's game, and it was very much done by like two sides of a country club where there were just two political parties, very much like you know similar I would guess to the Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives here in Canada where everyone knows who everyone is and everyone you know went to a good school and they all look a certain way and they all act a certain way uh, and essentially they were a lot of I would you know I would consider the same um, and I think what happened in Venezuela was that they you know because of I guess the oil bonanzas and the booms and the busts nobody really uh, that was I guess politically from what I re remember See, what I remember in Venezuela was like the, the very big infrastructure projects that were undertaken. The last ones that I have a memory of were done by Pere Jimenez, which was a dictator, then Venezuela's last dictator, uh, which ended up in the 50s. And then from there, there was a period of like, uh, I want to say like democracy, uh, and there was a lot of uh, wealth, but there was also a lot of inequality. Uh, and these issues were never really addressed head on. Like I remember growing up in Venezuela, there were farms that had hundreds of employees and they didn't have a single school nearby. They hadn't built a school. They weren't really caring for their employees to go to school. So it was a huge uh, divide between the haves and the have nots. And what ended up with Chavez, what happened with Chavez was that when he gets released from prison and he gives, he, you know, he goes and does one coup attempt, gets caught, gets pardoned, does another one, gets caught. Uh, and then there, he starts build, there's like, he starts his rebellion kind of starts picking up steam. Uh, and then he gets, when he gets the presidential pardon in 98, that allows him to run for 99 election. Uh, the second he gets pardoned, he flies to Cuba. Uh, and essentially Cuba dumps all of their chips on this guy because they see an opportunity to get a guy elected in a country that is gonna get resources. So Cuba just goes like, you know, mission Venezuela. And they, you know, they go all handsome and they train him. And these guys are brilliant. You, you mind you, Cuba has kept the lid on a communist country by expelling and, and essentially squashing every dissident uh, for the last 50 years and, and keeping a tame you know base of people that can't even protest uh, anymore. Uh, but what ended up happening was Chavez gets this huge intelligence and training from Cuba and he comes in and he starts building crazy uh, popular support because for the first time in a long time he starts touring the hoods of Venezuela like he starts going and there's one thing you have to give them credit he started a revolution. His party, his political party, didn't exist uh, 50, uh, 20 years ago, I want to say. He created it out of nothing. Uh, he was a true, uh, I would say, social revolution in a way, in that it, it, he, he essentially forced his way into, a, into the establishment. Uh, and so I don't really see that uh, right now in the US, because I do feel like the two parties have very strong backbones uh, and, and yes, you know, the, even in Canada here, you, you, you hear a lot of the rhetoric, but in the end, it's really, you know, the, the I want to say the, the conservative or the long term view, you know, they dig their heels, uh, you know, the Senate usually will dig their heels or someone who would eventually dig their heels and they won't allow it to get to that tipping point. Uh, and, I, and I do feel that one of the moats, I want to say that the U.S. got going for it is this 
allergy that they have to anything communist or socialistoid related. They're, they're almost like allergic to it as in their DNA. It's like they, they, they squash it. They're like antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the genesis for my question. Right. And, and because in the States, you know, um, say what you will about, you know, various other aspects of society. And of course they get criticized uh, quite a bit, but you know, the constitution is such a, as you were just saying, they're, they're so kind of, uh, they're so, it's such an important document for them. And, and even though, you know, uh, you could make cases that in certain places and areas and times it's been infringed upon or hasn't been held up the way that it's supposed to be. You know, it's it's kind of that bedrock document that keeps everything else in check, um, which is one of the great, you know, aspects of, of the government system they have there. But the, I guess the reason why I was asking that question is because, like, I'm always in when we talk about these big events in history, like if we go back to, you know, um, you know, the 30s in, in Germany, right? Like, and I've, you know, you watch all these documentaries, you read all these books. It's not as if every, you know, everybody in the, in the population or even a majority was like, oh yeah, you know, Hitler's going to take power and he's going to be this insane dude and he's going to run all, all through Europe and it's just going to be this horrible thing. Most people don't allow themselves to think things are going to get past a certain point, like it's going to, that it's going to get so bad. You know, and so I think this is what allows these big momentous changes to occur because they sneak up and they sneak up and they sneak up and it does, like, it's like, oh, it'll never get that far. It'll never get that far. And it gets to the point and then, you know, it either, like you said, gets turned back, get turned, turned back because of some sort of mode or some sort of resistance or it just, you know, it, 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 you wake up and it's past the point of no return. And that's kind of why I was wondering, you know, how it transpired in, in Venezuela. Well, there, there are very key moments in that process, to your point exactly, and going, going precisely to the point about the Constitution. The first thing Chavez did was rewrite the Constitution <laughs> as soon as he took office. In fact, it's getting rewritten again for the second time uh, under this new thing, the, well, the, the Constitutional Assembly, uh, which essentially is Maduro's creation to rewrite the Constitution so that he can remove the democratically elected opposition party, which is the only kind of thorn in his heel uh, because he he owns and controls everything else. Uh, and this is essentially the, 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 the National Assembly's where Juan Guaido comes from, which is all the turmoil that happened back in February. Um, his his you know, cre newly created assembly, super assembly created by decree to rewrite the constitution on his beck and call was done so that it could supersede this body that Guaido presides. Right. Um, and to, like, what's the sentiment of, of people to all these changes? You know, I heard, I heard, I don't know if you said this or if I read it, but, you know, Chavez, uh, dubbed his platform, I think in early days, 21st century socialism, you know, and, right. you know, again, back to the rhetoric that we're seeing in, in, the, in, uh, North America and West parts of Western Europe today, you see people trying to kind of legitimize socialism by calling it something else, something a little bit more modern, something a little bit more uh, palatable to people rather. And, you know, because you, you point out all these uh, different places where it's failed and they say, oh, no, that's old socialism. We're doing new socialism or we're doing democratic socialism or we're doing whatever variation thereof. And uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just fascinated by the process that people kind of you know, took them, you know, uh, swallowed the pill originally because it, it, they thought it would be beneficial. They would get more services, support from the government, and then how it degenerates into what we're seeing now.
So I guess if I can describe my my the 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 um, you know the surroundings or the moments around surrounding Chavez as a first election uh, was that he was this new you know socialist try to kind of take the middle path you know his his platform you know he would go on tv saying you know he went to talk to talk to like the top businessmen in the country like he really sold it for something it was completely not uh, he went out and said you know business people i'm going to work with you i want you know we want to get you the the visibility of labor that you deserve and he was going to magically fix everyone and make everyone happy you know and he had a great he had great charisma he was just incredibly uh charismatic guy so essentially, a lot of people were like, okay, well, you know, these guys have been tossing the baton for 20 years. They haven't really done nothing. This guy really seems like he has a plan. Uh, and, and who knows? Like, he may actually try something different. It was a very much similar to, like, the, the, the closest thing I would consider it to was Obama's election, which was this change, this idea that change was coming and that was a welcome change. Um, and usually, I guess, what, what ends up happening is, that, you know, when you try to pull off a socialist government and things don't go so well, you run out of money rather quickly. Your promises, you know, you can't make good on your promises because it, it sounds great that you're going to help everybody that's hungry and send everybody to school and build every road on the road, but you, you frankly just can't afford it if you're not just debasing everyone around you. Uh, and so usually what happens is you start not being able to deliver on everything and people kind of call you out and they say, okay, this is, first of all, this isn't working and A, it's B, it's fiscally irresponsible. So let's kind of go back. But what happened in Venezuela was the second Chavez gets elected, oil rallies. And the, the feedback loop gets poisoned because all of a sudden you have a communist guy going on TV saying expropriate this, expropriate that. And then you have more job offers and you get you know more incentives, more gifts from the government. You get buy cars for cheaper. Uh, everything becomes cheaper now. You can travel. And so everyone's like, oh, my God, like communism is a solution that we've been waiting for. And that's really what poisoned the feedback loop. And everybody in there was saying, no, 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 we're driving to a cliff. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm too busy flying to like Orlando to see Disney or, you know, go hang out with Mickey. And that's really what ended up happening. Man, the coincidences of history can be cruel. You know, when, when the fact, you know, the confluence of factors converge and creates a false reality effectively, but, you know, one that seems real for a period of time. It's, I mean, I guess that is the story of history. But, um, and what do you, what do you, what's your take? Or first of all, what do people in Venezuela, because presumably there's, there's still some people, a portion of the population that support the existing regime. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. And, and if so, you know, and how do they continue to do that despite what appears to be, you know, uh, a failing state or obviously a very bad situation? It's a, it's a hard question to ask, but you know, I, 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 I be, I'm transparent and I call things like I see them. Sure. Um, do you remember when I just said, but before Chavez, there were people that had farms that have thousands of people in it and they didn't have a single school. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that Chavez did, albeit poorly, is that he built them schools and he built them hospitals and he built them and he gave them free food and he gave them free everything. And even though it was brainwashing, he taught things to their kids. And for a while, they even got computers. So like, there are millions of Venezuelans who literally did not exist until Chavez. They didn't feel like they existed. They were never considered humans. I want to, you know, for lack of a, of a better word. And so for me to sit here and tell you that he didn't change the life of people would be, you know, flat out not trying to speak to I, I know that those the lives of those same people could be much better. And in fact, those of those a lot of those people today are the ones that you see walking 
out through Colombia and like a lot of them dying trying to get out of the country. They're, they're, if you see their pictures, they're actually carrying the backpack that was given by Chavez as social programs. Uh, a lot of them are, which is ironic and, and really sad to see. Right. But you see the, the divergence there. They're, they're, they were the ones taking all these benefit programs and now they're carrying them literally on their backs as they leave the country. Um, so he did change and, and there are, so, you know, let's, let's, pull it, let's put it this way. Let's say that he did this for seven million people, right? Let's say two million of those people have realized the truth and left. Let's say more than that. Let's say four million people like have you know woken up and said that. But there's always you know a you're always going to have uh, a radical uh, group in every country of anywhere. So that that base was always going to even just be there. Uh, but then on top of that, there's the guys who still have a lot to say. You know things will be better. Things will come back. You know and, and think about this right. Think about the fact that these guys had Chavez had the greatest decade they've ever had. And now they have this guy who's saying, you know, it's the Yankees, don't worry, we're just, we're just gonna come back, you know, we're gonna bring the, the commander's vision back, just give us a little more time, just give us a little more shot. Who do you think they're gonna trust, them? Or the guys that, you know, were before Chaz to be like, no, don't worry, you know? It, in a way it becomes, I'd rather, in Venezuela there's a saying that says, mejor malo conocido que bueno por conocer. So it's basically, it's better to hang out with a bad person that you know, right. than potentially try to meet a new, a new guy that may be cool. Uh, and so in, in, in a way, it's a lot of they're afraid of change. They're afraid of their social programs getting taken away. They're afraid of their their homes that Chavez built get taken away because that's what the government sells. It sells if the revolution leaves, you lose your home, you will lose your food, you will lose your Internet, you will lose your privileges. You'll you know, you'll likely get singled out as a radical and you'll get thrown in jail. So they they a lot of it is fear based but and necessity. How, how is all that being upheld in, in such a hyperinflationary environment you know like how how are things even functioning Infl tax taxation by inflation is a very hard concept uh, and the government is incredibly powerful and effective at, at shifting that narrative away from I'm printing money to it's the mean business people who are raising prices on you uh, and so because people don't make that connection that the government prints the money uh, and the government by design doesn't want that conversation happening and did they control uh, the flow of information, the internet, firewalls, that kind of stuff? Everything. <clears throat> you should talk about the fatherland card. Yes. So in Venezuela, there's uh, the way they control their subsidies. Thank you. That's, that's a brilliant point. Uh, there's this device that they could have created, this control device. Uh, actually, uh, uh, <laughs> I believe the actual technology comes from Huawei. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so what it is, is this uh, card that has a chip in it that controls all your subsidy programs. And they're trying to do this. Uh, they're trying to essentially replace the national ID card with this with this fatherland card, which is essentially a subsidy card. Uh, and they're trying to force every Britain Venezuelan to have this. And what, what essentially what this card does is that it is a census. It senses you It, it no like it's a census as in a way of like it, it determines who you are, what you own, where you live what you eat, what services you qualify for, where do you work, what cars you own, how many times you fill up gas, uh, literally everything. Uh, and what they do with that is essentially every time there's an election, uh, they will essentially go to you directly. And if they can't find you, they'll go to the person that gives you every subsidy. And if they can't find you, they'll go to the gas station where they know you fill up. And if they can't find you there, they'll essentially hunt you down uh, and and harass you into voting for their government or for their for the regime, uh, and this is uh, and it, has, it also has a GPS uh, chip on it, so they can actually find you literally, uh, and so this is all 
by design. It's a, it's a, it's a control mechanism. It's very much like you know Cuba uh, has done. And I think their their game, Chavez's game, was always to, and I, I think this is very much encouraged by Cuba, is let those who want out out, and in, in fact encourage them out. Uh, he would, you know, I remember back in the day he would subsidize uh, foreign university programs so that you know well-off parents would send their kids uh, almost, and it would cost them the same almost as keep them home. But to Chavez, a student was a very dangerous thing, particularly a smart student, because <laughs> smart students question things, have a lot of time, they can lead movements, they can you know inspire other people. So what ended up happening is he created this factory or not this factor, he created this huge incentive for everyone to send their kids abroad, especially the really the, the, the families that could do it, that could afford it. And of course they did, uh, because it was like, okay, well, communism's maybe coming to the country, so why don't you go and get an education abroad? So if everything goes, you know, if, if shit hits the fan, as they say, you can help us out and whatever. And that's what a lot of families did. In fact, I'm a product of that. Uh, you know, I, I was the one that left, more, largely because I was I wanted to. My two brothers decided to stay because they almost chose to. But I was able to study abroad because of that program. Uh, and largely, I'm now here, and I met the people I met largely because of that opportunity as well. But that was by design, because obviously, I'm here now. <laughs> right. But that, I mean, that would create a massive brain drain, right? I mean... Oh, and it has. That right. That's... That's a point, I, I guess. And like you said, that you know, they don't want smart people, but obviously, smart people contribute greatly to an economy. You know, so th am I right in assuming there's got to be a pretty strong hand of authoritarianism? Because if you're going to control things so much, I mean, is there a lot of state violence against the people as well? Oh, very. And forgive well the naive questions, but I just I no, try no. not to assume things. You know, when I I just no. want to know what the the truth is. So I'm going to tell you a story that this is this is not uh, and this is in the news. You can go check it out. Uh, uh, there was a uh, Venezuelan political dissident who uh, in, in in or around the Guaido time uh, was taken in for questioning. Now, this is a guy who has been like a community leader, you know, known around the community. He's a political he was a political leader. He gets taken in for questioning. And within two hours of questioning, he gets thrown out of the 10th story building or he gets thrown out of a 10th story building of the of the of the uh, you know um, authority uh, i think it's a uh, which is the venezuelan investigation police whatever uh, the guy gets thrown out of a 10th story building and the declaration comes out saying that he's committed suicide <laughs> uh, and so you know and again just going back to this thing like if you think jeffrey epstein's thing is bad like this happens in venezuela like on the daily uh, and the other piece that's, that's you mean really people scary, getting killed while they're in custody? Oh, all the time. Venezuela, there, there, there's, there's torture. There's people getting killed while in custody. Uh, there is people. Uh, there are people like literally getting harassed. Like families of people getting harassed. Like families of politicians, uh, uh, cops and police trying to like plant drugs in the homes of politicians to create scenes. Uh, like it's there's no law really in Venezuela per se. Uh, do you have, do you you have know, any trepidation about speaking out given that you still have family in the country? Like, is that a concern? Uh, I, I, I do, uh, you know, I, that, that goes to my mind a lot. Uh, and, you know, I, but I, none, none, of, none of what I'm saying is stuff that's not, not already out there. Right. Uh, it's, it's public information uh, in a way. And, uh, and I feel that 
these things need to be said. Uh, you know, it, yes, it scares me. I, I like to think that I'm still low profile enough that, that these kinds of things, you know, won't really get to that. And, and, and God, I couldn't, I don't know if I could ever forgive myself if, if anything I said ever, ever went back to hurt them. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, I try to just call it like it is and, 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 you know, do my best. So do people like, does your average citizen in Venezuela right now feel like their day-to-day lives is under the threat of violence if, if they don't, comply or is it just kind of like you know we have a certain we have certain parameters for our behavior and as long as we stay inside those parameters then we're, we're fine i mean yes it, it's it's hard to say because um you know you talk to this, a few of my friends that are back and and you know a lot of them just people that i talk to still that are back there and, and they'll they'll tell you like life's just Pretty much just like you left it, you know. Like, how's everything? We're like, no, just like you left it, kind of thing. And uh, it's it's you know, people adapt to everything. And I think you know, I forget who was it that said this, but adaptability is a double-edged sword. Uh, in that you you just can adapt to complete and utter crap. Uh, and so, for example, like the people that are there, you know, they'll say things like, oh, you know, just power rolls out. Power goes out just once a day now. Uh, it's only for two hours and, and it's scheduled. So, I mean, that's great. And, and you know, we get four hours of water and pff, I mean, whew, four hours of water. We fill up our tanks and we have a little pump and that's amazing. And we also got this little power generator for when the power goes out. Uh, and then, you know, we, we bring our stuff from Amazon and it takes a few weeks, but it gets here. So, you know, we're okay. Uh, so it, it's just, it's, it's funny because you just get used to, you know, harder and harder times. And it's a bit of a boiling frog effect, uh, where, you know, you were a person that were just trying to like, you know, preserve your wealth, preserve your wealth, preserve your wealth. But then all of a sudden you go and you look at the liquidation value of all of your assets and, you know, to leave. And it's, and you look at the harsh reality of having to leave and having to really grind it out. And you're like, eh, I'll wait, I'll give it a year. You know, I'll give it six months. I'll see what happens. Right. And, and you're, life happens. You you're, know? you're so right, man. I mean, you can <laughs> The thing that came to your mind, this is maybe too personal, but, you know, even like if you're in a bad romantic relationship, right, the complacency of of just like, eh, we'll see if it can work out over the next six months or like, yeah, we fight all the time, but, you know, I'm too busy to really do anything about it, like that sort of thing, you know, and it, I, I, you're so right, like we will, it, and it's, a, your double-edged sword is the best way to put it because, our ad- adaptation is what obviously makes us, you know, top of the food chain in an evolutionary perspective and stuff like that. But it also means that, like, we will try to make the best of any situation and put a positive spin on it, even if it's a situation that objectively should be improved or changed or we should extricate ourselves from it in some way or, or, or something like that. And uh, and then you layer on top of that, you know, ideology and propaganda that literally impacts your perspective that so that you're not you're not seeing things clearly you're not seeing the reality of your situation and the options that you have and the you know the context of your environment clearly and you have you know that's a perfect recipe for um you know thing status quo things staying as they are or staying in a bad situation longer than you should and cuba is another great example and, and there are several uh is it is it getting is it changing at all? Because what you just said, like your your friends would be like, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's as you left it. Is it getting worse, better? Like, what's the trajectory of of things right now? 
Um, so from from what I've heard, there's been you know Maduro is taking clear moves to get himself more hard currency, and because because of the fact that he's been blocked out of the entire financial system, so the only way he can get dollars now or euros is essentially taking them from its people. And the smartest way to do that, so before he, um, maybe this is maybe like a convoluted way to, to, to get to where things are today, but essentially Maduro has had currency controls, Chavez Chavismo has had currency controls uh, since existence. Like I believe that since Chavez came into office, there's been a currency control. And it's essentially been uh, uh, de- uh, crafted in a way that it would show an artificially low exchange rate fixed from the Bolivar to the dollar uh, so that it would it could inflate all of the local numbers. So for example, Chavez had this, you know, he declared that the exchange rate from the dollar to the Bolivar was two Bolivares for one dollar. And he set minimum wage and he said, you know, a lot of these, you know, development measure things in Bolivares. So when you did the division between two, it was like, oh my God, minimum wage in Venezuela is $3,000 a month. Like, oh my God, greatest, greatest minimum wage in the world. And, but if you tried to go and buy a dollar for two Bolivares, nobody would sell it to you. Right. Uh, only the government had the right to sell it to you because they control all the oil dollars that were coming in. So they decided who they gave these. And then the person that got them for two could immediately turn around and sell them for 20. And so what this ended up doing was, Nobody was using the government to buy some dollars because a they couldn't it was illegal But everyone was doing it anyway, so it created this like black black market or the market uh, that you know <laughs> People dub as the black market, but when the government, you know I, I try to question authority now every time someone tells me it's the black market I'm like well who decide who's the white guy because apparently the white market's not not nearly you know, they're, they're way more crook on that market sometimes <laughs> Sure, than, well the black the market is the free market, right? I mean <laughs> Basically, it's the yeah. one that without regulations layered on top of it. So, so in Venezuela, there was for a long time there was this known fact that you would never, uh, you would never sell your dollars to the government. Like, why? They were the lowest payers ever to the, of, the, of your dollars. But what they've done now is because buying it from people is the only way they can actually get dollars. And they realize they're like, okay, well whatever, screw it. If we can't get oil and we have this printing machine just sitting there, why don't we just print Bolivares and just pay ridiculous amounts of uh, Bolivares for people with dollars? Who the hell cares? We just print them, right? So they're saying, okay, anyone that wants to sell dollars, and they'll go to the black market and be like, how much are you guys paying for a dollar? 900? Okay, we're paying 1100. What's the black market? Oh, it went up to 1000? Make it 1200. Print some more. And oh, it went up to 40, 1600 print some more. And everyone essentially is like, oh, I'll take a couple hundred more dollars, more Bolivares, and go to the government and go to the government. So they're trying to, you know, create this. But, and so in a way, they're doing this to sort of steal their the hard currency out of the population or trade, it, trade mirrors for gold in a way. Um, and the so what, what, what that has done, the flip side to that is that they've relaxed a lot of the uh, foreign exchange regulations to, to be able to do this. And this has allowed businesses to essentially, and they've removed a lot of the fix uh, price fixes on a lot of the products. And what's happened is a lot of the products are magically back on the shelves because people now can make market profits on these goods and on the risk that they're taking. So people are starting to import things again. Uh, so, you know, I guess if I could say, you know, in February we were at like, it was terrible, but there was hopes of change. Now there are no hopes of change, but things are more livable. Uh, and as far as political things in Venezuela, I mean, 
I've become so disappointed and disillusioned with uh, the way that the the you know that this sort of push was was structured. I, I I don't even know what to say about Venezuela sitting on the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. I I'm just completely embarrassed and ashamed uh, to to even have you know I don't even know I, I don't want to go down a deeper and say negative nastier things, but uh, it's it's deeply it's deeply shameful to me. Uh, and uh, and so I, I have very little hope that any democratic solution will be reached. I think if anything in Venezuela, what we need is some sort of military uh, black swan, to be honest, uh, something that no one expects, nobody can really predict, uh, and it's probably brewing already. Uh, so I think that's really what's going to drive any sort of change in Venezuela. It'll be a military black swan event. So it doesn't look like the Guaido, uh, like he's going to gain any power or popularity or anything like that he has it he has it they're just not going to allow a vote right um and what do you make of of people in the in north america and europe um and i i don't mean to single her out but i she's coming to my mind like especially earlier in the year when when guido kind of emerged or whenever i can't remember the exact time frame when that was but um and people were arguing like you know we the Western countries shouldn't support Guaido. He's not the democratically elected, elected uh, leader, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's people like, I've, I heard Abby Martin speak on, on Rogan's podcast, and she's, you know, saying like, she's very pro-Maduro, right? Like, and she's also very pro-socialist. And so she's, you know, basically saying that the, the Western powers should not be supporting, you know, a Guaido because he's a you know, he's not a democratically elected leader and the people of Venezuela have chosen Maduro and stuff. No, I'm basically just saying that to, to uh, ask, like, what do you think of people in, in these outside of Venezuela that support Maduro? Is that just, you know, because they don't understand the situation or is there, I mean, is there any case to be made? It sounds like no, but I just had to ask the question. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, listen. The 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 people. Uh, I, I think people people are very much attached to ideas, uh, and I think people don't like hearing about their ideas failing or not working out, and or hearing things that challenge their core beliefs. Because if I tell you, you know, if you're if you're deeply rooted in conservative values or or socialist values, and I tell you that those don't work because of this example, uh, you know, that is a uh, that is a challenge to one of your core beliefs. And it's going to take you more than that one instance for me to convince you. It's 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 going to be very difficult. And so, I think a lot of people are in a way ideological lost causes, <laughs> uh, in in the sense that it doesn't matter what information is presented to them, they're always going to think it's doctored, fake, uh, not done right. They're you know they they just they're just so I guess brainwashed in a way or or closed off to the idea that their their idea you know that their concept of of, of government or, or what do you want to call it is it, just flawed that it, it you know they'll find every reason to tell you that you know this was because of the u.s sanctions that this was because they weren't given the time that this was because they weren't given you know the right i mean listen this guy not only was he given the time he was given the budget that no human in his shoes had ever been given he could have he actually was able to afford setting up a communist government franchise across the entire continent um, some of it still lives on today, uh, and some people still say that they need 
some more time or fairness or that it's okay for them not to hold an election. And so I, I invite anyone that, you know, thinks that Maduro has done things right or that, or that, you know, Venezuelans, uh, you know, Venezuelans don't want this government. Uh, Venezuelans, if, if all Venezuelans want is a right to vote. Uh, and the last time that happened uh, and they were given free and fair elections, the, the opposition won by a landslide. So that was essentially the last time they ever held the vote. Uh, and that's all we've ever wanted since. Uh, it's essentially the right, the right to vote. Yeah. Now, one of the, I've heard you talk about this uh, elsewhere as well. And one of the main, um, well, so the gun issue in the states, right? Uh, gun ownership is was was you know um, a very fundamental part of uh, of that nation's system of governance because it basically is a check against government power, right? If if you know if a tyrannical government take you know takes power, then the fact that the citizenry is armed sh- uh, should represent at least the ability to resist in some capacity, right? That's you know the idea behind it. And I've heard you say that uh, gun ownership in Venezuela is actually quite high, um, but it hasn't played out uh, in that way. You know, so even though that a lot of people own guns, they haven't kind of risen up together to challenge state power. Like, why and what's the dynamic there, and how do you see that uh, aspect of of things? Yeah. So I mean. Personally, I think it's a matter of, you know, a lot of people like, you know, this idea, and, and this is a concept that I've, that's been evolving in my head. And, and you know, I, I'm certainly not a, a gun policy expert or a, or a crime expert. All I can speak of is kind of what I saw growing up and, and sort of my mental model on how I see this. And the, what I saw in Venezuela was a society that was heavily armed, uh, not shy about using their guns ever, like gunshots at you know, people were drinking and, and, you know, people were drinking at a farm and then, you know, they'll be like, oh, let's go shoot, let's go some, do some practice shooting. And it was just like a normal activity. And like, you know, people would teach their kids how to shoot. And it was just like, a, you know, it was, it was gun, guns were normal, I want to say. Uh, and when, what ends up happening when, you know, uh, things get really bad and, and protests start happening is that you'll see that you know, guns are one, it's not about the guns, it's about organization. Uh, a, a, a disparate group of guns is useless. Uh, and not only that, but when you have a, a, a disparate uh, group of arms that are that don't really have the leadership, that don't really get the chance to organize, uh, essentially it, it ends up, what ends up happening is, you know, when a, when a bad governments don't turn bad overnight like certain it, it becomes gradual like certain things things start happening and as people see that if you're sitting in a position where you have a lot of resources and call yourself you're one of these people that are in this position to organize a movement let's let's call it that you're going to say okay well i have i'm going to organize this movement i have three kids at home i have you know a couple million bucks um and I'm gonna just go put a target on my head. By by what? By for for what? Like I have a European passport. Like I you know I could be going and 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 doing trading or whatever, get a job and invest in a new business. And why am I gonna expose my kids to this this mess? Why don't I just take off for a few years and see what happens? And the brain drain starts. The capital drain starts. 
Uh, and you know, as that happens, you start thinking to yourself, okay, I'm who am I? I'm some guy who's like a private impresario that have a few guns and a few things. I don't, I'm not a military guy. I don't know like, I don't know strategy, military strategy. I don't have AR-15s. I don't have like smoke grenades. You know, like it, so you can never like. I, I guess the the way I've kind of thought about it in my head is like no collective of citizens will ever be as coordinated or as well armed as any state actor. Like it's very difficult. And the best you can do is, is create this guerrilla warfare scenario. And guess what happens in guerrilla warfare? People get the fuck out. <laughs> uh, and, and it starts dying out and dying out and dying out. And guess who has more resources ultimately? Who can print the resources? And so, you know, it creates this, what ends up happening is it creates this hostility environment from which people leave, uh, usually to a better place. And so, all I'm trying to say here is that there's not there's not enough AR-15s and there's not enough you know smoke grenades that are going to stop you if, if things get really bad. Your your wife's not going to look at you and, and be like, yes, yeah, honey, go get the gun and like hit the streets. You know, go save us. Yeah. <laughs> the, it, it's going to be it's going to be your wife and your entire family begging you to be smart because you work very hard all of your life to have all these opportunities. And you're not going to go, you, you shouldn't go out and risk your life uh, to change a couple of guys that are clearly just criminals and don't really want to sit down and negotiate. Yeah. Man, it's, I mean, I, I hate to say that it's fascinating because it's real life and it's, it's, it's terrible and it's a tragedy. But just to analyze those circumstances where, you know, there's an extremely bad situation, there's an authoritarian government and the citizenry is armed and in, in which cases they decide to do something about it in which cases they don't and i i it seems like today you know i wonder how much information uh affects that right so if we look back at early you know times in the 20th century even you know in 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 cuba or you know in all the countries where uh or even you know in the u.s even further back like was the was the relative um deficiency or lack of information actually something that um, allowed those sort of uprisings to take place more easily or, or, or like because you know you just you're not constantly updated with information that's pulling you one way or another you just get the message sent from you know whoever that uh, trouble is coming and you better make a stand or else you're done and things were much less fluid and you couldn't travel as easily and all that kind of stuff and therefore maybe you had fewer options Whereas now, not only is the government restricting and, and you know, curating the message, so you're getting conflicting signals, but everything is updated in real time and you can communicate with everybody and you probably have more options uh, for mo mobility, if, if not your own physical space, but moving capital around or information and stuff. And I wonder how much that inhibits, you know, making the ultimate chess move, which is, you know, a coordinated uprising against the government. Because as you said, that's like, you're all in with your chips, right? You're you're risking your life, your family's life, your well-being, and if it doesn't pan out, then then you're done. And I like I don't know if we're in a time where like people are. Uh, I hate to use this term, and I I don't mean it as badly as it sounds, but like are we in, are we in a softer time where people are just kind of more willing to be controlled than take the risk of of you know their life and their family's life to rise up against something like is that a generational thing whereas you know in in times past people were way less tolerant of being oppressed or is there is it some other reason why 
may, you know, is there other things at play? I mean, it's, it's hard for me to say. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to sure, say. Sure, sure. Nobody, I mean, there's no right answer, right? I'm just kind of speculating, thinking out loud, but, um, you know, you gotta, yeah, it's, it's, that's why I, I asked mean, the question. On the softer right? time stuff, I think the I think the hard part for for people, I guess, I'll give you my my personal situation, right? Sure. Like, you know, I, I could have stayed there and thrown rocks and tried to organize political movements, but that probably would have wanted me up dead. Uh, exactly. And and so, what, you know, I think the 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 problem is, people realize that, you know, political like a country is a very complex system. And, and I think, you know, there's a huge disconnect between, I mean, I guess, I guess it depends on your adversary. I, I want to, I think it, that's the clearest answer, right? Like if I, if I, for a second thought that, you know, we were up against a group that would be civil and would hold elections and would allow, you know, assembly of, of citizens uh, and and do you know what I would consider normal things? Then then you feel encouraged that you can change these systems. But there are certain systems, for example, like uh, you know Venezuela. I would say Mexico is another example, um, or or perhaps even uh, maybe not maybe not Hong Kong now or China. But uh, there are places where being a politician is just incredibly dangerous. Uh, you know parts of Africa as well, because it, you know to your point, it's it's usually you know you want your politicians to be educated people you want them to be smart you want them to be you know to have resources and, and to you know or to, to come from yeah i guess to have had to be responsible you know people that represent you as a citizen right when you have that situation and you when you get there and you realize that you're talking to guys that have military hats on with like ar-15s in the back and they're the guys that you have to go up and and you know hand, do handshakes with you know, you, you, you know, what's the use, right? Like, to, you know, and, and I guess it also feels like, you know, people don't have your back, right? Like if, if in Venezuela, for example, you know, for the longest time, and, and, I, and I see this and I say this right now, as, as a person sitting inside of Venezuela, who has been heard, has been hearing for this entire year that the world is against Maduro, that, you know, we're going to sanction them, we're going to get them out, just hang in there, we're going to help you. And then you go and see Venezuela sitting in the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. You know what the Venezuelan government does with that piece of news, right? It dances around the country and it goes on. It goes on like every and the state media, which is the only thing there's left, because he took out everything. So it just goes on propaganda after propaganda, and it just completely breaks you down. Uh, and what the government does really well with the resources, the Venezuelan government at that, is, for example, every time there's like a uh, you know, the opposition starts to gain force, he's able to divide the actors by offering them things, right? Like he'll go and say, hey, you ex-opposition guy, why don't you go and say something really radical? Here's a couple hundred grand. And and it starts poisoning the narrative and it breaks down the opposition. So I guess the big problem is, to me, the biggest problem was when all the powers got compromised into one and that there was just no longer any checks and balances. Uh, it, it was just a disaster. And when the military gets in bed with the government, with the head of state, that's also like the biggest red flag. Sure. Like you, you know. Can people access the inter- like YouTube there? Yeah. So, access, so, like, so like information is still obtainable. 
right? Yeah, no, it's obtainable. I mean, mind you, wealthy people can use the internet. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, not maybe not the the and and it's very much like uh, you know they they'll give you the free services they'll give you. It has curated content, of course. Uh, so any the people that can afford the internet, I guess, can access it. Uh, but it's not that many people. Man. As you're saying all this stuff, I'm just thinking in my head, like, man, perspective really is everything, right? Like, you, you, you're painting this picture, and I, you know, obviously the government has has worked very hard to to create this situation. But you, you're painting a picture whereby a lot of people in Venezuela like think, like, yeah, it's bad, but you know, it's it's workable, and you know, I'm I'm willing to tolerate it. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the, the growing group of people just back referring to the, you know, uh, supporters of socialism in the U.S. where uh, objectively their, you know, their circumstances are far better and they're, you know, they're almost more vocally, um, uh, you know, opposed to the existing system than, you know, the, the people that are living under uh, Maduro. It's like, wow, like it's just a perspective is everything um it's it's incredible but what what so one of the things that um and maybe maybe adam will come back in on the conversation now because we're gonna we're gonna go into to bitcoin um but is bitcoin uh like i've, I've heard rumblings that like bitcoin is being used by the venezuelan government they may be mining that kind of thing um is is that going on? Is there any truth to that, or to your, to your knowledge? For sure, for sure. I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean, they, so they're, they're just they're using active. it. They're using it to kind of evade capital controls and you know whatever. Financial. They're using it to circ. Yeah, they're using it to circumvent sanctions. Yeah, pretty much, essentially. And they're they're using it as rails. I mean, I uh, funny enough, we just recorded the show with Marty where we had talked about just that, and and literally like the next week was when that article broke uh, that like the Venezuelan central bank like, had some coins and know what to do with them, <laughs> and I was like I flagged it and I sent it to him, and and uh, it was really funny because I think that was like the day that the show went that the show went out, but uh, it's uh, it, yeah I mean I mean. <laughs> They took some of our machines, right? right. <laughs> so uh, uh, for sure they are mining, <laughs> and uh, uh, they for sure. I mean, if you look at so I followed for a while. I, I haven't I haven't got up got caught up for 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 a few you know for a, for a minute. But I was following the Bitcoin rate and the dollar rate in Venezuela, like both uh, uh, official exchange versus black market. And for uh, you know, for a long, long time, you see Bitcoin trade at a premium to a dollar. So a dollar worth of Bitcoin trades at a premium to a dollar, uh, sometimes to the tune of like I think I saw like 70 percent. Uh, so almost like two to one at, at, at wild times. And and when I first saw that, I started talking to a lot of the guys, a couple of guys that used to follow similar information, and I was like, this is this is clear that the government is printing Bitcoin and buying it. Like these volumes aren't your average Venezuelan going on local Bitcoins, like. These, this is a systematic effort to, to acquire coin. <laughs> and that was, it got around, like we just had a few private discussions and this thing was like building and building and building. Uh, but it just makes perfect sense that if you can just infiltrate the P2P markets with a bunch of inorganic cash and get, again, trade mirrors for gold, you're gonna do that all day long. Uh, and that's, that's essentially what they've been doing. Uh, in the back and and what you know by printing a lot of this stuff they they don't care they're making they're debasing everyone else but they're, they're at least they're getting some coins so they can bring in their next subsidy right you know 
just to to put a capstone on the you know this conversation one because you were just talking about or we were discussing kind of the the role the history of like uprisings against the state power you know and as we were discussing that i was also thinking you know you if you win power you know if you if you uh win power and influence via power that's probably how you're going to lose it as well right it's kind of this cycle where it just keeps on repeating itself because there's always a winner and a loser and i think there's that's part of the reason among many why people are so excited about bitcoin because it may provide the opportunity uh at if the best chance perhaps at peaceful revolutions right it's a it's a revolution that nobody in particular owns but which can it has the ability has the potential to create revolutionary change without you know firing a shot as it were so if if change comes through this technology then you know it's you won't be able to point fingers at anyone really because it's not under anybody's particular control and so i think that's that's probably why a lot of us are are very interested in it um why don't you guys tell me why you guys are, are interested in bitcoin and then you can lead into leaden because i have a, a lot of questions about that as well uh yeah definitely well i mean i'll i'll i'll, I'll give my last <laughs> you know, uh you know one of the things i love about bitcoin is i guess what really got me into it was the fact that you know, in Venezuela, when I learned about Bitcoin, it was in the middle of this huge capital control. Uh, there was really nothing that, you know, buying dollars is illegal. And, and I say this often, people usually loosely just suggest that you should just use dollars abroad when, when things go bad and your when your currency goes inflationary. There, there's never enough of them around, first of all. Uh, there's huge problems with carrying cash. It's a huge liability. Bills break down and bills get marked and they start trading at a discount. In Venezuela, everyone walks around with a little pen and one of those little lamps because they, there's the only way. And taking a $100 bill is like the biggest liability of your life. So there's huge problems with cash. There's huge problems even if you have a bank account in a different country because the transaction fees are ridiculous. And, and next thing you know, you're getting your bank account shut down. And places like PayPal are getting started. Even Adobe started shutting down services in Venezuela now. So uh, it's it's a reality that Bitcoin solves a problem, right? Like in a place where your choice is a potential hundred dollar bill that may be fake, or a kilo of sugar, or you know some satoshis. Uh, a lot of people are just going to go for the satoshis. Uh, and I, I really love this concept of being able to transport your assets and your well-being along you know, globally with you without having to ask the government to to get you know has to having to ask permission so i guess that that's what i alluded up about it yeah and i think um you know from my perspective what i think is so exciting is just uh, uh really a similar point of the standardization that it provides so uh what's been interesting on this journey is just how, how different everyone's experience with with saving has been uh, globally. And uh, on our team, I'm the only one uh, that grew up in, in Canada, uh, was born in Canada. All of our team is Canadian citizens, uh, but uh, everyone else on our team was born in a different country. So what's super fascinating is everyone's had a very different experience uh, with financial saving, uh, financial products, sorry, with banking, uh, with the concept of money. Uh, and it's made me personally uh, realize just how lucky uh, Canadians and uh, um, you know Americans and Western Europeans have been uh, with with what to do with their wealth and what to do with their assets and just how to make sure that uh, they have at least 90 cents on the dollar the next year 
And, you know, I think, you know, just, just if I can, you know, lead into Ledin, uh, we really have uh, two missions and that's to help more people save. Uh, and it's to standardize rates and services for financial services globally, the same, every country, because we can. And that's what's exciting about Bitcoin is the asset, the thing that the mesh that puts us all together is identical no matter where you are in the world. And that was for the first time that's ever existed. So, right. And so how did you two meet and then decide to, you know, to hatch this this plan for Ledin? Because obviously when you get involved with Bitcoin and you're down the rabbit hole, you're just like, holy shit, this, not only is this fucking <laughs> awesome, but like there's so many possibilities, right? So how did you guys yeah. like hook up and then decide like this is the route you wanted to take? You, you touched on a little bit there, but, you know, if you can tell me the, the Genesis story. Yeah, of course. So I was lucky enough to meet uh, Mauricio at uh, business school at the University of Western Ontario uh, in, in London, uh, Canada, uh, London, Canada, not England. And uh, so that's uh, it's a pretty big university um, just in southwest Ontario. And, uh, you know, Mauricio was one of the first people I met in business school. And we ended up being uh, uh, neighbors uh, afterwards throughout university. So remained really good friends. And uh, I got into energy uh, right after school. So I was uh, building and, and developing and financing renewable power projects really throughout my entire career post uh, grad uh, engineer and, and, and business. And so that's kind of the technical background got me into the, that, uh, the energy side of things. Uh, and then uh, when Mauricio was coming back to Canada, uh, in between, he'd been back and forth a few times on, on uh, different jobs. And we had always stayed in touch, uh, chatting every couple of weeks or, or months uh, throughout, regardless where he was in the world. Uh, and as he was coming back to Canada, uh, he had been mining in Venezuela and he wanted to continue uh, mining in Canada. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what mining was. Uh, Mauricio introduced me to that concept. Uh, I was blown away by this concept of, converting electricity into uh, money and then how did that work and wh why was there a relationship between uh, usually it was the other way you obviously spent money to buy electricity and now you're taking electricity and it's converting into uh, quasi money or, or really what we uh, obviously definitely uh, came to believe is money uh, and then we, so we set up um, a, a small mine together uh, I thought you know if we're gonna uh, I don't like do like if we're gonna do a hobby let's make it real uh, so we set up a, a, a company together and, and, and started uh, uh, doing mining on a, a small scale and then just kept investing, investing in it. Uh, and then um, with, with that uh, experience, realized that there was just a complete lack of financing and financial products around this asset class. And so I, I had come from financing big infrastructure projects. And to me, this was infrastructure. It was hard. It printed, it printed cash and you should be able to finance it. And, and we just couldn't. Uh, and so uh, through that experience, realized that uh, Bitcoin itself was uh, really the best type of asset that you could finance it. It was it trades 24 uh, seven. It has a, a real market value. Uh, it's divisible. So uh, unlike financing a car, you can't sell the door. If someone doesn't pay, you have to sell the whole car. Uh, but Bitcoin is obviously more akin to uh, financing a stock where you can you can sell uh, pieces of it. So just all these great attributes made it incredible uh, as a financial asset class, yet no one else was was doing it at the time and things were just starting to evolve. Uh, so we really looked around at different products. Uh, within the first uh, a couple months uh, after looking into it, uh, there was uh, a, a few players did appear. So uh, Salt appeared in the US. Um, they had done an ICO. Uh, and then uh, there was uh, Nexo and a few others. 
which um, had, had done a great job at getting initial marketing off, off the start. But what we thought was, if this is really going to take off, it has to be done on a, uh, really in a way that bridges traditional finance uh, with the new Bitcoin community that was evolving. And so how do we explain it to, uh, you know, obviously equivalent of, of Canada's Wall Street is Bay Street. So how do we explain it to, to Bay Streeters in Toronto uh, and try to understand this asset class and uh, put it together in a way that is, is feasible for them to want to look at? So we really thought a lot about like bridging that language gap and uh, putting together a company and most importantly, a team uh, that could tackle this initiative. And so when you have those meetings, you know, whether they're with partner banks or with investors, people on Bay Street, whatever, uh, you know, are you laughed out of the room? Are people interested? Are, you know, what's kind of the, what kind of reception do you get from the, let's say, the legacy system that you guys have to kind of partner with to, to bridge this? I, I'd say, you know, it's, it's completely binary. It's either <laughs> I love it, I'm excited about it, or especially at the beginning, uh, you guys are nuts. You know, I, a lot of times <laughs> I'm getting, you know, 9, 10, 12, 13% yields on real estate. Why, w- why would I touch this asset? Uh, also, complete misconception around the volatility of Bitcoin. I mean, it is volatile over months and weeks and um, years, but on a daily basis, it's not actually that volatile. So if you compare it uh, just on the traditional stock market and you look at uh, margining, uh, like you know, really uh, different stocks on the New York Stock Exchange or Toronto Stock Exchange. You know, Bitcoin in, in some in some cases is less volatile than, than some tech stocks. So, uh, you know, it was it was really trying to to really understand concerns and, and kind of uh, come up with uh, ways to to bridge the perceived risks. Do you ever? Sorry, go ahead, Marisa. No, no. I was just gonna say you should we should we should uh, comment about the you know the the new financing deal which is close to coaches because on that on that trend of of uh, you know marrying institutional capital with Bitcoin, um, you know Adam, you, you want to ch- share some details on that? Yeah, of course. Uh, so we were lucky enough to get connected with uh, Arctos Capital, uh, who introduced us to um, Colchis Capital as well, and uh, Arctos uh, brings a ton of experience in uh, uh, traditional finance. Um, uh, their team. Uh, put together a lot of uh, equipment financing and uh, alternative uh, uh, debt products. And um, they, they stumbled into to Bitcoin a few years ago and started looking at uh, financing it as an asset class and focused really on educating institutions about it. And uh, Colchis is uh, a really big lender uh, behind the scenes on a lot of different uh, fintech. Uh, if, you, if you Google their name, uh, they financed uh, Square Payments. Uh, they financed uh, companies owned by, by PayPal. Uh, so they're they're a really innovative forward thinker uh, in in the fintech world, and um, to get them into the the, the blockchain and uh, see Bitcoin space was was very exciting. So um, yeah, just spending time with groups and uh, really really working through the thought process. Yeah, I, I saw that piece of news. Uh, congratulations on that. Um, but you. just for a second, back to those kind of initial meetings. One of the things that we as Bitcoiners always encounter is when. We're talking about Bitcoin to people that aren't really familiar with it, trying to explain what it is. And, you know, it's almost like, well, where the fuck do I start? You know, like there's so many different (laughs) there's so many different places you can start. So when you're you know, let's say you go into one of these meetings and people are not really they're pre coiners, let's call them. Right. And they don't really get it yet. They, They haven't fallen down the rabbit hole. They haven't spent the time. What like. 
I'm sure you've pitched it a number of times. What's been your most effective lead-in or, or way of pitching Bitcoin to people that aren't familiar with it? You know what? I love, I watched uh, uh, Anthony Pogliano uh, use this example, and I've, I've repeated it, so I can't take credit for it. Uh, but I love his explanation of when you start a game of Monopoly, and you open the box together, and you know how much money's in the box, and you deal it all out, and throughout that game, you can watch the money being exchanged. You don't have to doubt that that money is real or not, or whether that transaction occurred, because you can watch the whole thing happen. So then if you just replace the people at the table and you just put a number on them instead of know exactly who they are, so you make it synonymous, uh, and then you put it so that that can happen throughout the internet and you don't actually have to see or, or be beside the person, uh, that's, that's been a helpful explanation to try to st start with that. I think the hardest thing about explaining Bitcoin is people focus so much on the technology behind it, but the analogy I like to use is when you try to explain to someone the internet, you don't have to start with, okay, it's, it's a complex network of fiber optic cables bridging transatlantic cables using TCIP <laughs> protocol. You say you can do your banking on it. You can check flights. Uh, you talk about the use cases for it. And the issue with, uh, I always say, Canadians are even harder to explain Bitcoin to than, let's say, Americans, because we didn't have the banks fail in 2008. Uh, we have TAP Visa. You know, we, we don't... Like, you know, we complain when we send, pay 40 bucks to send a wire. But other than that, things work pretty, really, pretty well as far as money is concerned. Uh, and people don't really look at, you know, into how much is being printed and things like that. So uh, you really have to talk to someone that's had a, a real issue with saving or a real issue with, with transacting money. Uh, they get it right away. Um, and, you know, see that in the people that supported uh, our company too. A lot of them weren't, weren't, weren't born in Canada and they came from areas that uh, had issues with monetary policy. It's funny how in Canada, the monetary system is under such less scrutiny than in the US. You know, like you, you go down a, you, if you Google the Federal Reserve or YouTube the Federal Reserve, you're going to get all sorts of shit and there's books on it and there's people talking about it and Ron Paul and audit the Fed and where's the gold and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but in Canada, there's there's almost none of that. Nobody knows what the hell the Bank of Canada does. Nobody knows how much the money supply has increased over yeah. the last 10 years. There's not many Canadians yeah. talking about like the conspiracy of the Bank of Canada, <laughs> which is exactly, yeah. exactly the same you know, shit. Canadians are just, uh, I, I think it's it's getting better, uh, but just uh, politics are not uh, nearly as much of a discussion point. And then obviously uh, monetary policy being a subset of policy. This, this is a, a quick tangent. Uh, but last summer, so I live in an area called Little Italy in Toronto. And uh, Andrew Scheer, who is the leader of the Conservative Party uh, and you know may or may not win the election coming up in October 21st, was walking through Little Italy and... I think it was a party of about three. Uh, one of him, one of the people was uh, his photographer. The other one was maybe uh, his publicist or something. But if that was in the U.S. and that was 15 years before the uh, like the presidential election, where that person uh, could have maybe been the leader of the country, everyone would have been stopping. There would have been pictures. Like there's just a lot less involvement in uh, like activism, and I think that's uh, part of the big reason why. Uh, you know, it's just a subspecter of that, but it's, it's not uh, discussed as much. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so let's let's dig into Leaden a little bit. So, um, 
first of all, let's start at top level. Is this, I, I noticed on the side, I think the services are available to pe- not only Canadians, right? Some of your products are available to customers in various countries. How, t- tell me how that works. Yeah. You want to take that one, Mauricio? Yeah, sure. So um, we, 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 we we first launched the platform in Canada. It was the market that, uh, you know, you know, we wanted to essentially get it right and get it right in a country where we knew that if we satisfied, you know, consumer protections and, and uh, uh, really the uh, consumer protection, data, privacy, uh, and, and essentially, uh, you know, local regulations as well, then, you know, we would be able to take this Canada brand, uh, you know, which is really, has been really I want to say it's been a great brand built around financial services, given that the banks had, you know, good standing throughout this whole, uh, throughout the whole recession. Uh, it created this sort of, uh, I don't want to say brand, but this this like, bit of an idea of the, the, the Swiss banking of, of America sure. in a way. So, and and especially, you know, me being a Venezuelan, as a, as a Latin American, uh, Latin American people tend to have this. Uh, uh, tend to hold foreign companies, namely from North America, in the very high regard, because they understand the the scrutiny that they undergo and the essentially all the standards that they're held up to, uh, which they not always feel are held up in their own local countries. So many times in places like Mexico, Venezuela, Ecuador, Colombia, when you have essentially you know a local bank and then you have a foreign bank offering very similar services, many will opt for the foreign bank over the local bank. There's 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 foreign favoritism uh, and it's very real. So a we knew that in Canada, Canada was like an amazing platform. This is where all of our uh, all of our network was, and we also knew that uh, Adam and I, you know, we had built our network in in Toronto. We 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 knew that we could talk to. A Bay Street, and we knew that we could essentially bridge the gap between the language, and it was just a, a great global place to launch a company. Uh, and so when we when we did that, uh, even though we were built in Canada and our entire team is here today, um, we knew from the day one that this product was going to be a global product, uh, and we built it as such. Uh, and I think that shows because we do you know we do quite a bit of things differently than than other lending companies. Um, but when we built this product, we knew that when we took this internationally, um, we were going to be able to we were, we were we were going to need to be able to serve clients with you know lower volume, lower loan amounts uh, more efficiently because not everyone has you know 6.15 <laughs> to to be sending it to custody, uh, and so we knew that we had to be able to push loans for much lower amounts, and so we built all of our services in house. Not only because of that, but also that allows us to never have to share our customer data with anyone. Uh, and so when uh, you know, lend, some lenders took shortcuts uh, and they piecemealed some of the services and they have loan servicing with one guy and AML with one guy and loan contracting with one guy. And that's you know, four people that have that client's data. They, the client never finds out. Uh, but you know, then you have these, these leaks uh, and, and you, know, you, ne- you never even knew who had your info. Uh, so you know, that aside, uh, when you do that, and you, when you take shortcuts, and you end up overpaying for all these services, uh, you you become it becomes very hard for you to process small loans uh, because you have to now marry all these pieces, and it creates a lot of technical debt. So we we build the platform from scratch end to end, so we we're able to process. Right now, we're actually the the company that processes the lowest loan amounts in the industry at at 500 Canadian dollars, and uh, that was very much by design. 
And what we did right after we got the product basically going in Canada and, and, and things were moving and we were getting you know some organic requests from overseas, we went right into Latin America. Uh, essentially, and, and we for that we worked with Dentons, which is uh, you know a global uh, law uh, legal team, and we chose them because they do have offices in pretty much every market uh, that we want to uh, analyze. Uh, so we did a, a, a big exercise with them. We did this massive grid mapping out all the legislation in all the countries that we were interested in. And then essentially we figured out which countries we could offer our services to and, and we launched. So right now we're live in seven Latin American countries uh, and we have clients in four U.S. states. Uh, our savings account is actually pretty much uh, available globally. Uh, but the, on the loan side, we're in Canada. And like I said, seven Latin countries, we have uh, two European countries, and we have uh, four U.S. states. So for, for the loan product, for example, let's say you're in Peru. Are you guys in Peru? We uh, are, yes. Yeah. We can Peru. So is the loan in the local currency? Is that what you get if you put up the collateral and you get a fiat loan? Yeah, yeah so we... You... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say the user can decide uh, what... what uh, currency they would like their funds uh, sent in. Uh, sometimes, you know, in the case of Peru, you're allowed to have U.S. dollar bank accounts, so they could ask us to send it in, in dollars to their bank account in the Peruvian bank, or you know, they could ask us to go to Soles, and then no problem. Like we, you know, we can do that as well and send them their local currency. Do you need banking partners in all these countries, or are you just sending fiat from your primary bank in Canada and? sending it to their account wherever they are and there's a forex uh, exchange and how does that work yeah that's exactly it so the the loan is denominated in uh, canadian or us dollars and then uh the disbursement is typically in local currency unless uh as mauricio mentioned uh, a lot of um uh you know people in latin do have us dollar bank accounts as well uh so it's it's up to them on the choice uh we are uh adding um uh Actually, we can talk about that as well. But uh, an excitement announcement uh, coming up: we will be adding uh, Dai stablecoin as well uh, to be able to receive loans in stablecoins to reduce in any banking friction. Right. So right now, if I'm in Peru and I want uh, to to get a loan, then I'm probably I'm going to have to pay the international wire transfer fee. Right. It's standard. Uh, no. So we cover that. Uh, so there's no uh, unless your bank uh, charges uh, receiving wire fees, which uh, most of the times, uh, you know, if at all, it's the majority of the cost is from the sender side. Uh, so with our setup, we cover all the fees to deliver the funds to your account. Right. So I'm, I'm probably going to I'm going to preface the forthcoming questions with uh, these are probably stupid questions, but I'm not super <laughs> familiar with with the, this aspect of, of the ecosystem. But I think a yeah. lot of people uh, there's there's some apprehension about this whole world because people, you know, it, it, in some aspects, it sounds too good to be true. Not that, you know, a, a 3 percent or 4 percent, you know, annual annual interest rate is like wow we you know in the context of the, of the whole financial environment but it's like i think there's an underlying you know uncertainty where people are like how are where are you guys getting this new money to pay me so if we start with the um savings products and we'll, we'll break into the other ones in a second how do you guys generate you know the extra capital to pay me you know for saving with you guys yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's first uh, easy to, to talk about what, why is there demand for boring Bitcoin, 
And so that's, uh, we can talk about the, the industry reason for that. And that's really uh, two things right now. Uh, one is that the, the Bitcoin community would like less, which is uh, hedge funds deciding that they want to uh, bet on the price of Bitcoin going down. And that would be boring Bitcoin to short it, meaning that they, they borrow it, they sell it, and then they rebuy it when they, the price is better for them, not better for the Bitcoin community, lower. Um, and uh, so that's one use case for boring Bitcoin. The one that is far more prevalent is uh, the need for Bitcoin working capital. So businesses that want to make money uh, uh, get their returns in traditional fiat uh, that run exchanges or any type of business uh, that has a need for it. Like, let's think um, another one would be uh, Bitcoin ATMs. Uh, so they have to keep a float of Bitcoin ready to be able to purchase, uh, but they may not want to put all of their working capital at risk in Bitcoin because of price fluctuations. So they will borrow Bitcoin and that way uh, they have it available when someone sh shows up to buy it and then they rebalance and repay over time. So that activity doesn't actually um, uh, introduce a, a ton of risk into the system because they're just borrowing it very uh, short term to maybe max they need it for you know, a day a week uh, for that term. Uh, on our side, we are very, very conservative on how we lend it out uh, to the point that admittedly, we don't make much money, if at all, uh, from the savings account. And I say that because I think it's, it's uh, you know, to have an interest rate that's closer uh, to 10% to in, in this market uh, would definitely be a, a too good to be true scenario. And we did that uh, by lowering the interest rate. Uh, the market did change pretty quickly. Uh, so at first, this was a very novel idea. Um, uh, companies caught on to it pretty quickly. And then the, the market dynamic shifted where um, no one really thought of the concept of boring Bitcoin at all. Uh, the industry got educated pretty quickly. Uh, companies like ours said, hey, this is great. We can provide the service to the Bitcoin community uh, and advertise a rate, take the deposit, relend it. And then this filled up pretty quickly to the point where, uh, let's say, uh, a year ago, there was maybe... 50 million of deposits doing this. Now there's likely close to a billion or, or, or pl more plus uh, doing this globally. Uh, so there isn't yet um, uh, a lot of high, uh, the correct amount of high quality customers that can borrow this. So we're quite uh, careful on how we do that. Now, how do you do that really carefully? Uh, you ask for collateral. So you can do it the traditional lending way where I say, hey, okay, you're a great exchange. Uh, can you send me your financials? Uh, can I do a very, uh, you know, uh, you know, traditional finance uh, credit assessment? We don't like being in the business of doing that. We're not, uh, you know, we, we don't want to have a team where we uh, have to look at the credit analysis of every loan and start to, to bet on the profitability of these companies. So we like lending where we ask for uh, U.S. dollar collateral. And we, we, we ask for people to put up, okay, you want to borrow, uh, you know, 100 Bitcoin, okay, that's, you know, a million bucks, then send us a million bucks, and then, uh, you know, we'll send you the Bitcoin. And so uh, when you do it on that really conservative basis, you don't get a high interest rate for doing that. So that, that's the safe way that it's being done today. Right. And amongst the, the products that you guys offer, there's the savings product, the loan product, which is a 50% loan to value, um, fiat, a Bitcoin for fiat loan yeah uh, and then there's the b2x all of which we'll break into but which is the most popular at the moment um so we do have more savings deposits than uh loan collateral so on a i guess on a, a total bitcoin basis uh the savings account is more popular uh but what we find is that uh savings account um you know i guess we 
I can kind of break into the use cases for this. Uh, but we have we have a lot of users in the savings account uh, that like to get onto it to test the product and get familiar of it because it's very low friction. So uh, not all platforms do this, but you can deposit one dollar of Bitcoin uh, should you choose to on on Ledin, and then track your interest rate every every month on that, and just just to see how the tech works and, and make it, sure that you're three and a half percent a year. Is that what the it is. Rate is? Yeah, and then so if you look at if you leave the interest in there for a year and you let the interest earn interest as well, so compound it, it gets to three point six. So that's why we we say three point six APY. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's the most popular, and then out of the two loan products, which is which is more popular? Uh, the traditional loan product is today, simply because we just launched the B2X last week. Right. Right. Yeah, and the other the other reason is uh, we have to be there's an additional regulatory step on the B2X uh, because on the loan product, we're, we're lending only and we're holding Bitcoin and collateral. On the B2X uh, product, we're providing a loan, but we're also selling Bitcoin at that uh, point of uh, the loan being approved as well. So because we're packaging that uh, together, uh, there's another regulatory check. So that's the reason that as of today, we only launched B2X in Canada. And uh, we'll be rolling it out in select countries uh, in the in the coming weeks. Right. So for the yeah. uh, the loan product, you know, ha- having a fifty percent loan to value, you know, I think that's pretty easy to understand. If the market uh, moves, well, let's say down, then I think yeah. I heard you discuss on another podcast. If it reaches seventy percent loan to value, you get margin called. If it's eighty percent, then you might liquidate some of the position. Right. That's so, right. So basically, if if Bitcoin moves down thirty percent. You get margin call. If it goes down forty percent, you get liquidated to some some degree, right? That's right. Yeah, the math is a little like it's it's that's the approximate math. It actually works to, to twenty eight and a half, and the price decreasing to get to seventy just on on how the ratios work. Right. Uh, but that's that's very very close. So that's right. And and I guess the premise of our economics is our only economics are the, the interest rate and the administration fee that's charged for setting up the loan. So we don't profit uh, from these, uh, you know, margin call scenarios, and that's by design. So we want to make sure that it's your Bitcoin. You take all of the profits if Bitcoin, uh, you know, increases. You also take the downside risk if Bitcoin goes down. So really, this comes down to a balance of how far can we push our investors to get them comfortable lending this money, and the terms are a reflection of that. So as our terms improve from our investors. We would like to pass that on uh, to users and, right. and keep this uh, the best product we can. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously, Bitcoin does sometimes, you know, it's not a, not unheard of for it to drop 20, 30, 40 percent over the course of a few months. And in fact, you know, I, I think I heard you guys on another uh, podcast or interview earlier in the year, and you said you'd never had to execute a, a margin call, you know, because Bitcoin had been we're just in the the bottom of the bear market when you guys got going and things have been going well now we're you know we're in a bit of a call it what you want a a drop in a bull market or in a bear market. who knows where we are but uh i I assume that you've you've actually had to do that now is that a correct assumption and if so you know any reports on how that went you are correct john so uh yeah we did ironically i think it was only 
five days after that uh, uh, last uh, podcast that we did do our first uh, uh, margin call. So uh, well, hopefully we didn't uh, jinx the market. Uh, but uh, it was it was something that had kept us up to say, okay, what is this experience going to be like for us? What's it going to be like for uh, you know our customers? Um, and it was far better than I think we envisioned, not to say it was a positive thing, but the reaction we got from people was was quite understanding. So uh, there was no, hey, this wasn't you know in the in the terms and conditions. I didn't understand. Uh, I think what's amazing about building a business in this in this space is everyone using this product and using Bitcoin is very smart. So our, our customers are discerning. They understand it. They get it. Um, you know, they 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 know how it's set up and. What we find too is uh, we didn't actually, out of all the different uh, loans we margin called, only about I think it was 10% uh, ended up uh, selling a piece. So most of our customers simply added additional Bitcoin uh, from other services. Or uh, what was what was great for us is they asked if they could move it from our savings account. So really, over time, our job is to get more people comfortable uh, using Ledin for all of their Bitcoin needs and uh, having the balance to have Bitcoin stored in savings that's earning an interest rate and then have it uh, your loan collateral for when you're borrowing and then having those move between each other uh, is, is great for us and hopefully great for our customers too. Yeah. So they said, oh yeah, this happened. Do you mind moving uh, you know, half a Bitcoin for my savings to balance out? Of course. So and that's, that's how most of the loans went down. Right. Am, am I right in assuming that with the B2X product, I mean, it's obviously, it seems like it would be far more sensitive to market movements, right? Because it's a, it's a one-to-one uh, collateral. So, what what is the what is your approach to margin calls, liquidations with the B two X product? Yeah, so it's actually not one-to-one. So, uh, you know how it works is you start just to make the math a little easier. Let's say Bitcoin's at ten thousand dollars, and so you start with one Bitcoin. Ledin sells you another Bitcoin by lending you ten thousand dollars, so that you end up with two Bitcoin as collateral with the ten thousand dollar loan against it. So it, the end state of it is exactly the same as the, the loan product. So it's a 50% uh, loan-to-value um, loan. It's just that you started with, with, with t- an asset worth 10000 We lent you another 10000 so that you have 20000 of assets with a, t- a $10,000 loan against it. So what's great about it is it, it's the same uh, you know, underwriting, but it's for a different demographic. So the loan product is for someone that needs cash. The B2X product is someone that doesn't need cash but wants more exposure to Bitcoin. Right. I'm going to yeah. get you to clarify that again because I'm being stupid here. But what? No worries. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I want you know, I'll, I want to use the B2X product, right? I yeah. send you yeah. one Bitcoin. That's right. Then you purchase on my behalf another Bitcoin. That's right. And add it to my account. Yep. And then you give me ten thousand in cash. No, or, I, I, le- I I lent you that ten thousand right. to buy that other Bitcoin. Right. So I guess it's it's easier to explain that the the basic loan product first. So the basic loan product, you have two Bitcoin, and I you put them in our uh, cold storage collateral. I lend you ten thousand, and that ten thousand gets sent out to you know you can do whatever you want with it. Um, and then when you repay the 10,000, you can take the, the, the two Bitcoin and uh, move them around as you please. So on the B2X product, you only have one to start, not two. I lend you 10,000 so that you can buy another one 
on the condition that you have to put both of those uh, two up as collateral uh, for the 10K loan. So I can't give you the 10K loan because it was used to purchase that other Bitcoin. Right. So what, what's what's the difference? Like if I just use the, the 10K loan and, and just buy my own Bitcoin, and so therefore you guys have one of my Bitcoin, I've purchased another. So basically, what, what's, what's effectively the difference? So it's how much uh, you start with. So really, in the, in the example, I kind of screwed it up because I said you had two, and I, I mixed the examples. But in either case, let's say you have one Bitcoin, and your, your sole desire is to purchase more, di more digital assets or more, well, hopefully more Bitcoin. Yeah. And so if you just had one Bitcoin, I can only lend you 50% of the value because you're taking that off the platform. So one Bitcoin is worth 10K. I can only lend you five grand. So you can go and buy five grand of Bitcoin wherever you want. But because you didn't put up that Bitcoin as collateral, I can only lend you at 50% loan to value. The B2X because you're agreeing to put the other, uh, we have one Bitcoin and I can lend you another 10K on the condition that you put both up as, as collateral in the loan product. That, that's why. It's, it's basically one is a mortgage to buy a bigger house. The other one is a mortgage on the house you already own. Right. So you, you, you maintain custody of the two Bitcoins in the B2X product for the entire, for the life of the loan. And it can be paid back yes. at any time, right? Yeah, and so what pe what people are doing is, and this is like a bit circular, but you could go, you know, put up one Bitcoin, borrow five k, go buy a Bitcoin, bring the five k Bitcoin back to us. Now you have one point five Bitcoin. Now you borrow half that, and you eventually you'll, you'll yeah you'll get to the same point. To yeah, exactly. You'll get to the same point as B two X. So we thought this is silly. You know, a big portion of our customers are doing this anyways. Let's like simplify it for them so they can do everything on the platform and do it in one simple step. Right. So, yeah. and in the case where, um, are is it possible? Are there cases where um, you require more? You would require more collateral beyond what you could liquidate, or is is that not? Would that not happen? Uh, there's no recourse. Uh, so, I mean, our our, our um, the assets that we have are, are the Bitcoin you put up. So, um, you know, that's that's how we're able to loan. So we're not doing credit checks or, or anything like that to, to come after other assets that you own. Right. So big, you know, um, mantra in the Bitcoin community, not your keys, not your coins. Right now, yeah, of course, uh, I, you know, I, I I think that's a good mantra to have for security and for individual sovereignty and those sort of things. But I also think it's good that products and services are available should people want to delegate a portion of their uh, portion of their you know Bitcoin assets to maybe get get more interest or get a loan or something like that I think the more services the better and then you get to, to choose how you want to allocate your your Bitcoin um, but so this this brings up the issue of, of custody right because people basically say if I'm gonna you know lend my Bitcoin to you what assurances do I have that you know you're going to give it back or, you know, what are the assurances basically? And I, I saw from your site that you work with Bitco, um, uh, a well-known custodian. And my question with, uh, on that front is, you know, so you go to their website and they say they have $100 million of insurance um, against their custodial, custodial assets. Um, but it doesn't say how much, what, what the value of their custodial assets are. So if their custodial assets are in excess of their insurance, what is the uh, implication for people whose assets 
who, who, people who hold assets with them, whether it's via you or directly, via Lenin or directly? Yeah. So I think, first of all, why, why did we choose BitGo? So when we, when we started on the journey, uh, we wanted to do every single thing in-house. And we actually built our own custody solution uh, in Canada, you know, the classic sharded, secure, and a bunch of different vaults. Uh, but we found it was an impossible, uh, frankly, educational exercise to explain how our custody worked while trying to build trust in the financial services industry uh, as well. So we looked around and we said, okay, what, what has um, a great reputation? What has uh, excellent technology? What can integrate with our platform seamlessly so that we don't have to send our customers to, de to onboard with another system? Uh, and that's really why we ended up with BitGo after doing a very in-depth analysis uh, at who was out there. So at the time when we selected BitGo, they were the only uh, custodian that, that offered insurance at all in the market. So I think it's a it's a really good point on digging into the insurance. Uh, it is I it, you are you are correct in that um, it's a hundred million dollar policy, uh, and that uh, their assets are in excess of that. So um, I, I think a couple insurances that we have is that all of our loans uh, set up are all in individual addresses. So there is a, a protection so that there's not one central wallet at Bitco that if there was a hack, everything is gone. So already you have uh, diversification on that. Um, the other point I'll make is the insurance industry is evolving. And I think as they get comfortable with more, I do hope that they will improve it so that they will look at a, a total uh, amount on everything. Uh, uh, just from my understanding, it is uh, best in class that's uh, available at least uh, for, for services like ours uh, currently. Right. And do, does BitGo actually publish uh, their total assets? I didn't see it anywhere on their site. Uh, I, I don't think they do. Uh, I know from a few different articles, I think it would be north of, uh, of two or three billion. Right. So, yeah, so that's definitely, I mean, if the insurance is only $100 million, that's definitely something that, that people want to consider um, when they're looking at their risk, you know, tolerance for whatever financial products they're looking to gain access to. Yeah, and, there, and, there, and there's a lot of different, uh, you know, obviously, like anything, the, the devil is in the details, right? So one is the total dollar amount. Uh, one is the, uh, you know, at what situations uh, is the insurance valid? Um, you know, so is it a protection of a hack and theft? Is it protection against human error? Uh, so these are all things that, um, you know, we think about a lot and that we've looked into. And again, it just came down to what is the best possible solutions that we can offer our clients uh, and best integrate with Ledin services. And that's how we ended up with BitGo. Yeah, right? I, I remember what I was going to ask next. And it was just that, you know, in servicing international clients, what are your legal obligations, if any, to, you know, fulfill the terms of uh, the insurance protections that you, uh, that are, you offer through BitCo. So basically, if I'm, you know, wherever I am in Canada or, or another country, if I take out a loan, uh, is there any legal obligation if whatever the insurance policy dictates, as you just mentioned, if it's due to hack or, or something else, what are your obligations to pay me and at what level are you obligated to pay me out? Yeah, so I mean, if we uh, on the on the loan side, uh, you know, putting up collateral, that's that's Ledin's legal obligation. So we have an obligation to our customers to pay their in, in, entire Bitcoin balance back. So the insurance really just comes down to 
uh, Ledin's ability to recover funds to pay the customer. So it's a, it's an insurance on top of Ledin's guarantee uh, already. So uh, you know the customer would have full recourse to Ledin uh, for for um, not providing loan collateral uh, in the event of a loss. So would that be legal resource? I guess in in Canada, right? That's the only. <laughs> Yeah, correct. So the customer would go, uh, you know, they, you know, if we had a loss, you you make a claim against Ledin, and then Ledin would would claim against uh, Bitco's insurance policy through that. Right. Um, yeah. And how is the interest on the loan paid? Is it is it paid? You know, whenever you pay back the loan, it's just uh, like you pay whatever interest has accrued over that time. It's not like you don't pay it on a monthly basis. And and how do you pay it? So in Canada, uh, yeah, would you? Would you would it come from if if the price of Bitcoin is increased during the period of the loan? Would it just come from that, or would you pay it with fiat, or how does that work? Uh, so the interest is charged on the fiat amount only. So the the amount of interest we make is uh, irrespective of the price of Bitcoin. It, it's fixed. So if you borrowed a thousand dollars, your economics are after a year you own uh, you owe eleven hundred and forty dollars because of the fourteen uh, percent all in cost with twelve percent. Uh, uh, for the interest plus two percent for the admin charge, uh, so that's the total economics uh, paid. Uh, we don't um, it, it accrues monthly, but it's not payable monthly. Um, that was something that we updated very early on uh, because it was silly to be collecting uh, interest. We want to make this uh, product as simple, so it's uh, one deposit in, funded within 24 hours, and then uh, one payment really at the end without any early uh, prepayment charges. So you can use the product for a week, you can use it for six months, you can use it for a year. At the end of the year, uh, we would ask the clients if they'd like to be refinanced. Uh, so that's the, the kind of um, evolution of it. So it's intended to be a very frictionless, um, you know, flexible product. Right, and, but let's say you know, the price of Bitcoin goes up during that period and I'm able to pay my interest owing on the loan just with the, the the increase in value of the Bitcoin. Oh, of course, yeah. So yeah. that's 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 totally fine. A lot of people will use um, these sort of lending services to avoid, you know, tax events, basically, right? To to get fiat yeah. for their Bitcoin with, without uh, having to generate a, a capital gains tax. When if you if I pay this again, this may be a stupid question, but I'm not that familiar with with taxes and stuff like that. But if I um, have a loan with you know uh, put a bit one bitcoin up with you guys and a year later it's up 50 percent i want to pay back the loan i've got enough you know in the increase in value of bitcoin to pay the interest on the loan is liquidating some of that bitcoin to pay back the loan is, is that a, that's a taxable event right to your knowledge um it if you sold the, yes if the if the price of bitcoin was higher uh than your cost base and you sold it uh, to cover the interest rate uh, and the gain was higher than the interest cost then yeah that would be a that would be a taxable uh, event for the sale of that bitcoin so it's just all about your your cost base and when you came in um so again that that at least how it would work um and under canadian rules uh, everyone would have to check their own, own uh, local tax and uh these rules are are, are changing like pretty uh, interesting all around the world, right? I think uh, it was Portugal, uh, they're, they're treating uh, Bitcoin uh, taxes differently. Uh, so it really depends on which, which country you're in. Right. What's been the hardest part about this, uh, you know, offering this product and service uh, for you guys so far? Hmm. The hardest part. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's been uh, it's been a lot of hard work, uh, to be honest. But but I, I think it's no, nothing has felt like it's been uh, uh, you know. Yes, we we've come into challenges, but to, but we've we've essentially all come together as a group and, and essentially tackled every single one. And, and I feel. You know, frankly, I have to say I'm very, I'm very happy. Uh, you know, where we are today, and, and with the traction that we have and the trajectory that we carry. Um, you know, I think the the. You know, I, I don't know, Adam. What do you think? <laughs> I'll start with the easiest part. <laughs> the the easiest part has been uh, our team. Uh, I think uh, we, we've been lucky that uh, the same people that we launched uh, this with are are. Are with us and continue to add more and more uh, to the to the mission and what, what we're doing every day. Um, I, I think the hardest part uh, has been really, really uh, trying to simplify uh, what we're trying to do. And I think uh, if I can go back to what I just explained on the on the the B two X is like how how to get. Uh, I think what we're trying to do is is really offer simple products. And how to break down the explanation so it's like oh yeah i get it that makes total sense so i mean if i can explain b2x a different way if you think bitcoin is going up more than 14 percent a year from now you should use the pro this product on all of your bitcoin right <laughs> like that's the basic that's the basic under the math of it right but uh, along that is you know how do i know that you're going to keep my bitcoin safe uh you know what are my tax consequences um, you know, what is the, you know, like, like what, how does your platform work? What, well, you know, what KYC do I need to go? So there's a lot of pieces that we're just trying to, to, uh, make, make sure that they're as, as frictionless as they can. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do every day is just like simplify, simplify, simplify. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think that's bang on Adam. And I think the, the, I think, I guess one of the, 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 the challenge was that, you know, I, myself, I'm, I'm a Bitcoiner, I'm Venezuelan, but I, you know, and I and I carry myself as such, but I also went to finance school with Adam to like <laughs> to, to Ivy, which is like, you know, it, it's a it's a very you know, tough finance school. So I guess we we are we all come from structured finance backgrounds. So I guess Adam and myself, and as we were crafting this, and as we as we were building, you know, as we, in our journey through the Bitcoin industry, we were like, oh, it makes perfect sense to finance this. You know, we should put this thing as collateral for a loan, and that you know, who wouldn't want to give us 14% money and take this thing on collateral? Uh, it's perfect, right? But when you tell people this, though, because you know we understand the tax implications and the benefits of it, uh, we understand how structured finance works, so we get that the yield is, is 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 good for them, and it also allows us to work and deliver a return. So we we saw that the opportunity was there, but it's not as easy for other people to see that uh, because it takes a certain level of, you know, perhaps uh, you know financial know-how to to understand. A that you know this is a this is a, a completely natural product that exists in every other asset class. Uh, B that it's okay to you know trust a regulated group that's going to offer the service uh, and is is a good actor and and is not going to run away with your money because unfortunately in the in the Bitcoin space we had a lot of bad experiences with previous lenders that just you know did terrible jobs with a lot of people and even even today I would dare argue that. You know, some people are still out there today defending that you know tokens are an enhancement on the lending experience. I I would have to highly disagree with that, uh, just because you know I I don't know if more people most people that are lending are really interested in, in owning shares in some in, in the random lander. Uh, so it's it, to me I think that 
it's relatively new, like the, this, this, this concept of a uh, compliant, well-behaved, not afraid of regulators lender is is relatively new. It has you know a few years out. The the, the last set of guys that that were getting grabbing headlines basically did a big few to the regulators, <laughs> uh, you know, when they raised their funds. So it, it's interesting to to see that that dynamic. Um, so I do feel that it's going to change more and more as people a learn about these products and b get more comfortable with them. Yeah, and so. Oh, another question kind of based on that, you know, just back to the, the, the custody part for a second. What two questions? One, if, if BitGo has in excess of a billion dollars, let's say, in, in custodial assets, why do they have only a hundred million in uh, insurance as far as you guys understand that industry? And two, in your in both of your eyes, um, and look, like I said before, I think it's good to have, have options, but what and like you said, like if you think Bitcoin's going to go up more than 14% over the next year, then just on the math, not considering the risks, then the, the custodial risk, let's say, then sure, it makes sense. And then you just have to determine how much you're willing to put at risk and how much, you know. But, but what do you guys think is the biggest risk of using financial services products uh, with Bitcoin where you have to basically give up your, your private keys? So, you know, why not the higher insurance amount for BitGo and, and what do you guys think is the riskiest part about, you know, offering products and services like this with Bitcoin? Yeah, I can take the insurance one, Adam, if you sure, don't yeah. me, because I yeah. think I think it's important to to, you know, as a Bitcoiner, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of weight that goes into the the insurance coverage of custodians, how they are, you know, how they are or not insured. Uh, there's a lot of games as well. Uh, not every insurance policy is, is, is the same. They're not all treated equal, uh, and neither is every custodian. So, but I think the 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 important, or I guess the basic thing to understand is, you know, to hack a cold vault, uh, it takes a series of physical steps to get there. Um, to my knowledge, no uh, vault per se in a cold storage setting has been compromised or hacked uh, because of the physical element that it takes to essentially coordinate to you know, bring together all those keys. What has been hacked in custodians and exchanges alike has been the hot wallets. Because you need to have it automated, you know, it needs to be connected to the internet, it needs to be API'd into and out of, and it, it inevitably, you know, bad things can happen. There's a lot of code running around those the hot wallets. So generally what exchanges try to do is they minimize their hot wallet balance, it's a bit of a petty cash account. Uh, and that's essentially where all the risk lies from uh, from a hack and theft standpoint. Now, best practices would tell you that most of the people that are using BitGo as their custodian will hold most of their assets in segregated vault addresses. So from a, from a risk perspective, the actual chances of an attack happening and that affecting more than one cold vault in BitGo are very low. Um, what can be affected rather easily, or I guess more easily than not, is the hot wallets. But generally speaking, no exchange under the sun, especially given what has transcribed recently, is going to hold more than $100 million in a hot wallet, or at least aim to not do that. Um, and it would have to be a, a heavily, heavily sophisticated, and in my view, coordinated attack uh, to get into even one of the big ghost hot wallets, let alone two or three or even a cold one at that. Um, so it's important to understand, yes, that, that you know we can all sit here and discuss theoretical risks all day long, uh, 
but but if you have a, a custodian that is a qualified custodian as designated by the United States, and they are custodians of gold and other things that are physical, like a, very much like a private key becomes once it's in the cold, um, you would have to assume that these guys have met the conditions to essentially protect the assets of traditional banking, which should be, uh, you know, by today's standards, uh, comfortable because everybody else uses stocks and usually other printed products in other banking places. So it is, it is uh, call it the safest way, uh, in our view, to store Bitcoin today. And uh, what was the other part of that question? So that, that, that was one of the kind of the, the risks as, as you saw, right? Um, and the, the role of the custodian. I, if, I, I actually forget what the second part was, but so does that mean that your key management scheme, or do you have a key management scheme, or is it all just handled by the custodian? I guess it would be by the custodian, right? It is by the custodian, but just to clarify, we do have internal controls to submit instructions to the custodian. <laughs> so to give you an idea, like there are layers on layers on layers uh, that this has to go through to actually to, to, for anything to happen. Uh, so, you know, and that is by design. Uh, so, uh, you know, we take security very, very seriously. You know, to Adam's point, I think you made this in, in the point in, in, a, in a different chat we had, but the day we lose the SAT, we lose the business. Uh, so we're, we're paranoid and, and very much, uh, that that's pretty much our priority from day, like, from the moment we wake up to the moment we, we, we go to sleep. Right. <laughs> it's to not, it's to protect our client's money. Yeah. And I, and I heard you say that also, you know, you get a, a transaction ID, basically public key so that people can affirm confirm the balances of the the funds that they have with the custodian is that correct that's right yeah. so what we do differently on our loan product is uh every single loan has a unique address right uh so when you apply for, for the loan you get a unique wallet address and then you can ping out you know a public block explorer yeah. or or if you're running your own node your own node and confirm that the bitcoin hasn't moved right so, i remember the the, yeah. the 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 last question it was why, in your guys' opinion, do you think the custodian would have, you know, insurance far or have custodial assets far in excess of their insurance? Like, wouldn't they be able to get higher amounts of insurance? Uh, I don't know for sure, John, and I don't want to put words in, in Bitco's mouth. So this is uh, I can only speak on our own journey. So uh, when we were looking at getting uh, our own custodial uh, set up initially and now so this is this is many months ago, uh, a year plus ago. So the market may have changed since then. But insurance was at least uh, one to two points of insured value. So when you can think about running a custodial business where they're getting paid likely 20 to 40 basis points uh, per year on assets under management, uh, if they were to insure their total asset man on that dollar value, the business would be a losing uh, money in entity. Right. So I don't think that would be that's totally my own words, not sure. not not Bitcoin or anyone's against custodian, but that's just our own experience uh, with the insurance market at the time. And in a lot of uh, cases, too, uh, you're insuring things that aren't the highest risk activity. The highest risk activity is human error. It's human error in, um, you know, put copying an address wrong and, you know, very, very simple stuff. Or you know not protecting the the private key properly by not having it in deep cold. So outside of that, um, you know it's it's 
you know, I, I don't want to call it a, a feel good because we, we do, uh, you know, this is a separate uh, piece from that, but there is a lot of in, uh, insurance policies out there uh, that do fit that uh, description. Right. So, so. Um, well, look, guys, yeah. you've been super generous with your time, especially on a Friday night. Um, it, last question is, what, what do you guys... I hope that doesn't uh, affect how cool you think we are, John. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, it's, it's, I think it affects how cool you think I am that you want to spend your Friday night with me. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, Friday morning for you. Who knows what you're up to tonight? <laughs> uh, Saturday morning here, actually. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, no, but last question is just, uh, what do you guys see for this? Like, what's your, your grand vision for, for Leden, for the work that you guys are doing? What do you want this to become in the future? You know, just tell me, tell me your vision. I mean, I, I see this as, um, I, I mean, I would love to say that Lenin will become, uh, if, if not some, some, hopefully someone in our, in our industry or one of our peers. But I, I, I think that for a long time, uh, we've wanted, you know, not we, I don't want to say something. It's going to sound very cliche. Like humanity has wanted something very simple, but like, you know, as I, as I, you know, grown up and traveled around the world and had, you know, moved around different countries, um, it would be really great if we could just have the same way. Now we have largely just one phone number, uh, and, and one email address that just that, that we do everything from, it would be great if we just could have one bank account where in one global bank. Uh, one thing that always frustrated me a lot was that, you know, if you open an account in an HSBC in Canada and you have an account in HSBC Hong Kong, they're not even the same bank. They don't talk to each other. You can't do transfers from one place to the other. It's like completely different countries, completely different banks. And they all they did was just like lie to you, really, <laughs> telling you that they were this global entity, but they, they were never really talking to each other because, you know, Hong Kong people get one some things and Canadian people get some things and Guatemalan people get some things. And, and it's always, you know, they were always playing favorites. And, and you know, to Adam's point early, I think to us, a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. You know, a, a die is a die. Uh, you know that that's that's what it is, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. We can offer the same level of service. Uh, so I do feel like this is a great opportunity for us to build the, the first really global bank around the first true global money. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, in order for the mission of Bitcoin to uh, really become the asset that everyone wants it to be viewed at and, and get more and more adoption, uh, you just have to provide more and more flexibility. Uh, free to do with it and we want that that process to be as simple and secure uh, and easy to use as possible so uh, we have loans today uh, we have the savings account today uh, we launched uh, b2x in case you want to uh, access more bitcoin so more and more products uh, that make it uh, super easy uh, to use bitcoin uh, is going to help us all out so uh, that's what we're excited to do just just stay on that mission so awesome well, look, guys, uh, I really appreciate the time again um, and yeah. putting up with uh, my questions. I just wanted to make sure that I understood it. And of course, anybody you know listening, try to a ask some of the questions that they might have for, for this product. Because I think, you know, like I, s I keep saying, I'm glad it exists. And that just so that each of us can determine, you know, what options we want to go for, how much we want to allocate to those various options. And, you know, it's good to see, um, you know, people in the space doing it right, you know, with integrity and, and trying to, to preempt a lot of the concerns that you know, people in the community and, and uh, potential customers would have and try to build that into the product and service offering. So I think, yeah. you know, it seems pretty clear to me that you guys are trying to do that to the extent that you can. So, uh, you know, I think that's, that's great. Um, 
I think everyone's probably going to know where to uh, uh, reach out, but is there any destinations that you guys wanted to, to throw out before we shut it down? Uh, you can reach me at adam at ledin.io. Uh, that's my email and on Twitter at Adam Reeds. Yeah, I'm uh, Mauricio at Ledin.io and I'm uh, at Cryptonomista, uh, Cryptonomist with an A, and then Ledin is at Hoddle with Ledin. Uh, so yeah, we're pretty active. We we have a lot of exciting stuff lined up. So uh, yeah, definitely uh, peep and, uh, and stay tuned. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, thank you very much. Wish you all the best in the future. I'll let you either get to bed or go down to the bar and have a few drinks and, and unwind. But uh, yeah, let's talk again in the future. Thanks Definitely. so much, Sean. I appreciate the chance to chat. All right, guys. Take have care. Have a good rest of your day. <laughs> Thanks. See ya. See you later. Yeah. Have a good Saturday. Bye-bye.